If you want to go ahead and open your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 17. And while you're turning there, just two housekeeping uh, issues or points. Uh, the handout that I've provided that's uh, to help you remain engaged, if that is helpful. If it's a distraction, just set it aside. Don't worry about it. It's uh, merely meant to be a tool to help uh, those that it would benefit to stay engaged and follow along. And secondly, what I forgot in the announcements time is if you uh, are a visitor, which we have many this morning, uh, there should have been an insert in the Bulletin. If you would fill that out for us, if you feel comfortable with doing so, that, so that we can follow up with you, if you would like that. So let me read John 17, verses 20 through 23. This is what the Lord prays right before he goes to give his life for us. I do not ask for these only but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. I don't know if you've ever had the experience like this or unexperienced like this where a text of scripture, or maybe it was from a poem or a story you read, or maybe even a movie that you watched where something that was said captured you. It captured your imagination, it captured your thoughts, and it made you pause and think because the significance of it started to move things in your mind. It started to force itself into your thinking, and you realize you've got to rearrange some things. That is this text for me. Obviously, it's happened with many texts. Hopefully, you have that experience regularly with the Bible, but even more so, this text, these few verses together. I'm captured by it. A few years ago, I shouldn't say a few getting older, um, I guess I would say seven to eight years ago, uh, I read this text, and I had read it so many times before. You hear it as you're listening to the Bible, read through the Bible, or read the Gospel of John, which is a good thing to do frequently. And I read it again, and I began to see what it's actually saying, what the Lord is praying for, and the significance of it for the life of the church and for you and me. And since then, I really haven't finished moving things around in my heart and mind. That's what I want for you today. As much as possible, you're going to see me trying to exalt this text and its implications and the context of Scripture surrounding it so that you feel the significance of this text. 
And where I want to begin is this. Right before, in preparation for this message, I read, dash, listened through the Gospel of John again. And I noticed something about this text that I'd never seen before. What John does is he begins with the problem of human unbelief. There's a problem of human unbelief in the Gospel of John. And I want to show you at least 12 passages in the Gospel of John leading up to this verse, making sure we understand the severity of this problem. John 3, 11 through 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and we bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you, if I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? John 4, 48. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. John 5, 35-38, And the Father who sent me has Himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. And you do not have His word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom He has sent. John 5, 43-44, I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? John 5, 46 through 47. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me, but you do not believe his writings. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? John 6, 35 through 36. Jesus said to him, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. John 7, 5. For not even his brothers believed in him. That's other sons of Mary and Joseph. Not even his brothers believed in him. John 8, 43 through 45. Why do you not understand what, it, what I say? This is Jesus pleading with the crowds. Why do you not understand what I, what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do with your father's desires. And then down to verse 45. But because I tell you the truth, because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. And from John 10, 24 through 26. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. And I want you to see this one. If you have a finger to place in John 17, turn to John 12, verses 36 through 43. This is stunning. John 12, 36 through 43. 
While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. When Jesus said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, still they did not believe in him. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah says, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory, meaning Jesus' glory, and spoke of him. Nevertheless, even many of the authorities believed in him. And it'd be great if John just stopped talking. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. In John 14, 17, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. In John 16, verses 8 through 10, When He comes, when the Spirit comes, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin because they do not believe in Me. Concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see Me no longer. So at least 12 times in the Gospel of John, depending on how you count, there are a few more. John is underscoring, highlighting, this devastating problem of human unbelief. So the problem is that the people, and I'm just quoting the passages here, the people do not, will not, and cannot believe or receive the word of Christ. It's devastating. People do not, will not, and most alarmingly, cannot believe or receive the word of Christ. So when we come to this passage in John 17, I want you to feel the weight of that problem. The problem of human unbelief should be hanging on your mind and your heart when you read John 17. So let me read it again. Listen closely. I do not ask for these only but also for those who will believe in me through their word so that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I've given to them that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. This is the answer to the problem of human unbelief in the Gospel of John. So the question is this. How will they believe through the apostles' word? Jesus prays for those who will believe. 
through their word. But Jesus and John have spent all this time explaining the problem. They don't, they will not, and they cannot. So how are they going to believe through the apostles' word? How are they going to believe through our word? John, I believe, wants you to feel that desperation. Because it's likely he felt that same desperation. And he's there, knowing how many times Jesus underscored the problem of human unbelief. And he's the closest one to Jesus at the Last Supper, hearing him pray this prayer. He's the only one who records it for us. So that's the question. How will they believe through our word? This is the answer. And it's an answer you might not expect. It's an answer I didn't expect and I didn't see. The answer is that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are working together to make us perfectly one. And he repeats it twice. You can't just throw up your hands and say, well, it's all up to God. Our trust in the supposed goodness of people's will in order for them to be saved. And it's not a numbers game. Like a salesman, you know, you make just enough sales pitches, it's a ratio, you keep telling people the gospel, and eventually people are going to be saved. That's not the idea of Scripture. What gives the Word its self-authenticating power is the unity of the church. That's stunning. What gives the gospel, the word of Christ, its self-authenticating power to the minds of unbelievers is the unity, the oneness of the church. That changes everything. It changes everything. And it's still changing things in my mind. So the idea is simple enough, but it's awe-inspiring and it's life-changing. When an idea captures you, when you when you have some revelation like this, some deep realization, it makes you want to go home and maybe you're not as excited about the games you want to watch. And it just like I, I don't want to I don't want to play, I don't want to participate, I, I just want to think. That's what I hope happens to you with this. Maybe not today, maybe not this week, but soon. I want it to change your life. This is likely why the theme of John's three letters that we have, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, is love one another. He's following it up. And the Gospel of John might be written after the letter, so he's like, here's why I've been telling you why you ought to love one another. So biblically, how should we define unity? Okay, that's, that's a kind of a hippie word that we can throw around. Oh, unity, love, all this. So how do we define it biblically? There's four things. The first is being of one mind. If you want to turn there, you can. It's Philippians 1 and some passages in chapter 2 and 4. Philippians 1, verses 27 and 28. 
Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that when, uh, whether I come and see you or an absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, standing side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. And also Philippians 2, verse 2. Complete my joy by being of the same mind. Having the same love. Being in full accord and of one mind. And then Philippians 4, verse 2. And this is just from Philippians. You could go to basically any letter of the New Testament and see this theme. It's just very pronounced in Philippians. Philippians 4, verse 2. I entreat Iodia and Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Theology is important. And this is one of the unfortunate reasons why we can't have unity with some branches of broadly, broadly defined Christianity. Because being of one mind is the starting place. Believing the same things generally about God is essential if we're going to have meaningful Christian unity. If a person professing to be a believer, just to take one example, says, well, it's not really important that Jesus was born of a virgin. You can't really have unity with them. You can be their friend. You can be kind to them. You can be compassionate to them, merciful to them. You can't have unity with them. That's just one example. We have to believe the same things about God. Bad theology, this is the way to phrase it in the negative, bad theology or impasses on truth issues make unity impossible. The second thing that defines unity biblically is loving one another. 1 John 4.20 says, If anyone says, I love God, but hates his brother, he is a liar. For he, do, do, for he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. So here's the implication of that. Burying the hatchet will not do. You understand what I'm saying? Burying the hatchet will not do for the kind of love we're supposed to have with each other that's this unity that gives the self-authenticating power to the message of the gospel. Jesus says in John 13.35, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. Ephesians 5, 1 through 2, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So you were called and commanded to love your brothers and sisters in the same way that Christ has loved you. Aren't you really glad that Jesus doesn't say, I love you in theory, but I won't live sacrificially for you. I love you, but I don't want to talk about or fix the things that are wrong between us. I love you, but I don't really want to forgive you. 
I love you, I just don't want to be your friend. Love each other as Christ has loved you. I love you, I just don't want to spend time with you. That's not love, brothers and sisters. That's worse than hatred. It's not caring at all. The third aspect of of unity, biblically defined, is humility. Humility towards one another. If you still have your spot in Philippians, this is Philippians 2, verses 1 through 5. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among you which is yours in Christ Jesus. If you don't count others more significant than yourselves, you can't have unity in the way the Bible defines unity. It's a stalemate. It's a ceasefire. It's a we'll associate with each other and be in the same room, but we're not going to love each other like Christ loved us. The fourth aspect of Unity, biblically defined, is sacrifice for the family of faith. Galatians 6, verse 2. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. You want to have one command that in Paul's mind, if you want to summarize it all, fulfills all of the law of Christ. Bear one another's burdens. Galatians 6, verse 10. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially those who are of the household of faith. Why would Paul say that? Why would he say when when you're evaluating your budget, when you're putting things together and you're figuring out how you can be most helpful, why would he say put the emphasis on those who are of the household of faith? That's counterintuitive to what we might think, right? Right? We should spend our time being really nice to people who are outside the faith and loving them and and being really sacrificial for them so that they might want to believe. But this is what he's appealing to. When they see your love for one another, that gives the word of Christ its self-authenticating power to them. And that will do more good for them than charity. And so... Let's restate the idea that unity in the church, salvation comes to the world through unity in the church. Obviously, the word of God has to be there first, and we're going to talk about that. But the way the world knows, the way it presents to their mind in a way they can't ignore in the same way that this light is on, and you could tell me it's off, but I, I see it, it's on, is your love for one another, your unity with each other. So let's go through some objections that we might have to the text or to this stance, interpretation. That's not clear enough. We want to reach the world. We want to do all these things. We want to see conversion and repentance and revival. It's not clear enough to just say, have unity in the church. Well, I think it is clear enough 
The Bible gives us at least 29 unique one another commands. And we spent a lot of time going through those in our emphasis on Hebrews 3.13. 29 unique one another commands. We obviously need to trust God on this one, that this is what Jesus prays. He repeats it twice to let us know this is how the world is going to know. I've raised the issue of the problem of human unbelief, the entire Gospel of John, and the first time that it is explicitly stated that this is how people will believe is through your love for one another. You're being perfectly one in Christ. We need to trust that that is His way. This is Jesus' missionary manifesto. And it is specific and clear enough. The Bible gives you more than enough clarity on what it means to love and live in harmony with your brothers and sisters. The second objection would be, well, that won't work. It just simply won't work. And my answer would be, this is how it worked for the early church. We read these passages romantically about what God does powerfully in their midst. Acts 2, 42 through 47. And they devoted themselves to the apostles teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers and all came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. They loved one another. And it shocked the world. It was stunning because the world can't account for this kind of love. Next objection would be, well, that's kind of an obscure text. Kind of just cherry picking that one verse to let it explain all of that. It's not an obscure text. This is actually how all people and even we will know that we are true followers of Christ. From John 13, 34 and 35, I've already mentioned this. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, by this, by your love for one another, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And it's how we will know as well. If you lack assurance, if you have dark nights of the soul where you're not really sure where you stand with the Lord, 1 John is what you should read over and over. I'll say that from experience. 1 John 3, verses 14 through 15. We know, we know that we have passed from death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life living in him. This is how you know, and it's how all people will know, that it's legit that we love one another. 
Next objection. But I already love people. I already love everyone, and it's not, you know, it's not having this kind of effect that you're talking about, preacher. Well, here's my rebuttal. Is it love that makes non-Christians take note? Is the kind of love that you're loving your brothers and sisters in this room the kind of love that makes non-Christians take note? This is from Matthew chapter 5. If you want to turn there just to see this, this is the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5 beginning in verse 46. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? The world's not impressed when we love people who are just like us and make us feel good. Don't even the tax collectors do the same as that? And if you greet only your brothers family members, your tribe. What more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same, those who don't know God? Therefore, you must be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect. This is a test. This works as a good test of your desire to come and worship God. Loving those that it doesn't really make sense to the world for you to love. One generation shall commend your works to one another, and they shall declare your mighty acts. Last objection would be, well, I don't know how to start. This seems all new and categories I haven't really thought of. I don't know where to start. You can start with understanding the full extent of the gospel, what it really does. Begin by understanding the full extent of the gospel. This is from Ephesians 2, 14 through 16. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. What God does in Jesus through the gospel is more than just reconciling us to him. It is reconciling us to one another. And that's the proof that it's real because the world can't see your reconciliation to God. It's a legal declaration in the courtroom of heaven that you have right standing with God. But the world can see your reconciliation and love and forgiveness and unity with one another. Now, we have addressed possible objections to The text, now the text objects to us. Here's how the text would critique our practices and our life. First, we've got to get the ordering right. Get the order right. The word of the gospel comes first. Jesus says, I am praying for those who will believe me through their word. 
It's got to be out there. The truth of Jesus has to be proclaimed, and it's got to be out there first so that your unity and love for one another actually has tangible effect in their belief of the message. If you're just nice to one another and there's no content of the gospel, then what are they going to believe in? That you're an interesting person. You're a peculiar people. But what about Christ and that we are his people and we are his disciples. So the truth, the gospel has to be out there. You've got to get the ordering right. Because it has to beg the question. When you put the message of the gospel out there, it will incur opposition. And they will be asking, well, that seems otherworldly. It doesn't seem like that is possible. That seems like foolishness. So they'll be looking for proof. And that's when they look at our unity and love for one another. So stop killing people with kindness. If you show love to non-Christians around you, and you never communicate the reality of the gospel. You're preaching a lie that this kind of life and love is possible without Christ because you haven't told them. It has been falsely, most likely attributed to Francis of Assisi that he says, preach the gospel at all times and if necessary, use words. It's always necessary. The word of Christ comes first. Acts. I want you to turn there. This is, this is huge. This is a hill I die on. Acts 4, verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit. You want to you witness the filling of the Holy Spirit in your life? Be bold and proclaim the gospel. Filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, and by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. In verses 19 through 20. But Peter and John answered, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. The gospel grips you to the point where you can't stop speaking about it whenever you have the opportunity. It may not be a full presentation, but it involves Jesus and death and sin and reconciliation and forgiveness. It's not just God loves you. The text objects to us again. It says that our unity cannot be or it cannot be unity and 
love just like the world has. Jesus prays, make them perfectly one. In the unity of the Father, by the glory of Jesus, and working by the Spirit, this is a mysterious, otherworldly unity. It's not just like the world has. This is mysterious and different. This is how Paul speaks about it in Galatians 3. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And, you are, and if, if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. It breaks down categories and barriers and generational divides and gender divides. It's not that we stop or cease being what we are. It's that the unity and love we have for each other crosses over those barriers that exist in the world. So here's a question. Have you ever given any non-Christian an example of category-defying love? In your entire life. Have you ever so loved someone in a way that's category defining and different than how the world loves that they took note? But the church can look so much like the world. Send these people over there. These people over there. Let's divide, 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 divide so we can really know God and experience him. Mark 10, 13 through 15. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant. Jesus got angry. And he said to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. That's a promise. The next objection that the text brings to us is that your unity and love cannot be in word only. Can't be theoretical and in your heart alone. 1 John 3, 17-19 But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before God. And the last objection of the text to us is your good works mean nothing if you do not love in this way. Your good works mean nothing if you do not love in this way. Your ministry and your service, and your sacrifice, and your works are all invalidated completely. If you do not love in this way, I save this one for last. 1 Corinthians 13. And it's right there. You know it. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging symbol. If I have prophetic words and understand all mysteries and knowledge, and if I have all faith 
so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. And if I give away all I have and deliver my body to be burned, but do not love, I gain nothing. Don't trick yourself into thinking that you're living a life that pleases God. Because you do a lot of Christian things. And you know all the right things. But you don't live a life of love for your brothers and sisters in Christ. So how do we apply this? How do we obey this text? There are a few things. Hopefully, you as a Christian, those of you who are paying attention and you're listening and you see it in the Word, you already have a list of things that you should do. But I'll give you a few as well. Begin with your family, the people in your own household, your spouse and your children. And remember, this is an application of how do we love, how do we have unity in such a way that the world will take note and know that our message is real. Start with your family and children. One of my mentors, who was my youth minister a while back, uh, his first name was Skeet, which is just amazing. Um, But he had this great story about in his workplace, he decided that the way he would evangelize was to speak glowingly of his wife. And any time his co-workers were complaining or talking about how they bothered them, their wives bothered them, he would just speak glowingly about how much he loved his wife. And they came to him asking him, what is it you have? And maybe you realize, I haven't done that, I've done the opposite. Well, you can start by going to your non-believing co-workers and friends and asking for forgiveness for doing the opposite. You can see this in Ephesians 5, 20 through uh, 22 through 6, 4. Also, use your home. Use your home. The author of Hebrews says in chapter 13, verse 2, do not neglect to show hospitality. One of the things I said when we interviewed here in October of 2018 is, there's just no substitute for spending time together. There's just not. Maybe invite your brothers and sisters over and then invite a non-believing neighbor or co-worker over so that they can see you love one another. Just as simple as that. Show hospitality. And then apply some tests. I think it's important to test ourselves. Paul says that we should take care or pay attention to how we build, how we build out our lives. Here's a few tests that I would give you. Are all your closest friends in the same life stage, same financial quadrant, and have the same interests? Here's another. What kind of behavior would be needed were the invitation list for a child's birthday party by their own choosing included at least some who were over 50 or over 60? to whom they weren't related to. What would it take in your own personal devotional life so that the presence of the types of people who annoy you or behaviors that annoy you 
didn't derail your ability to love God together with your brothers and sisters who might annoy you. What work and change would it take in your own heart so that you would see reconciliation with your brothers and sisters as the most important thing to do? The first order of business in living a life that pleases the Lord. Did you know that the, the New Testament only gives one explicit reference for reasons for missing church? There are, there are many others that are implicit, like if you're sick, don't come and give us all the flu, right? Um, don't love us that way. Um, but the only one that is explicit, if you are there giving your offering, you're giving your offering of worship, and you remember that your brother has something against you or you have something against your brother, go immediately, leave your offering, go be reconciled with your brother, and then return. The next application would be to repent of sin. Sin makes unity impossible. Repent of sin, especially the sin of division. 1 Corinthians 1, 10-13 I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of the Lord Jesus, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you may be united in the same mind and same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized into the name of Paul? And I want you to see this one. This is the last place I'll have you turn. Proverbs 6. And this is under the heading of repenting of the sin of division. Proverbs chapter 6. Beginning in verse 16. There are six things the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. It's an abomination. The Lord hates it. And I would say to many of those of you who are mature, or have been paying attention, who are being self-reflective in this moment, you know exactly what to do. I don't really need to tell you. You know exactly what you need to do. There's reconciliation that needs to happen. There's forgiveness that needs to be asked for. There's a confrontation that needs to happen. There's peace that needs to be made. Or else our message of the gospel is invalidated. It's that important. And to those in this room who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior, the application of this text is to believe in the Lord Jesus. And let me just say to you, those in this room, you know you, you haven't trusted Christ with your life. I want to just say I'm sorry. 
I'm sorry for all of us. We have asked you to believe and entrust your life to Jesus without doing a very good job of showing you this life-transforming unity that he enables us to have. We have asked you to believe in Jesus and receive his word without giving you the proof that he told us you needed to see. We've asked you to come to church, attend our events, to give your time and to be part of our gatherings, all while behind the scenes there's disunity and infighting. We have sinned against you, non-believer, non-Christian, by not loving each other. We have not loved you in our resistance to walking in humility and love for one another. Maybe you've seen some kind of this unity, some shadow of it in the experience of church prior. And maybe a bunch in this church even. But please, please forgive us. We have endangered your soul more and put you at risk, put your eternal destiny at risk more than before, by not showing you a consistent and true picture of the love of Christ among us. So what makes today different? Why am I appealing to you to believe in the Lord Jesus even now? Maybe in hearing my description of the unity that Jesus enables us to have and hearing me confess our sins to you and call us all to this kind of unity, maybe you've seen a glimpse in your mind of what's possible and what's been made possible by the work of Jesus in our hearts. So maybe your heart has been warmed to the Savior as you ought to believe in Him. Even in the absence of the proof that he says you need, at least in hearing that we know that we've done a bad job and we want to do that thing that he calls us to do, maybe in that you have some of the proof that you need. Just know we will try to do better by his power. Trust in, believe in Jesus. John says in John 20, verses 30 through 31. Now Jesus did many other things, many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Believe in the Lord Jesus. And just a final encouragement to the believers in this room. Hopefully all of this is an encouragement to live a way that the Spirit has empowered you to live with each other. Because it offers clarity. Reaching the world for Christ is a very daunting, overwhelming prospect. But when Jesus says to you, here's how the world's going to know that this is legit, that our message is true by your love for one another, maybe that just gives you clarity and a way forward. And that can be encouraging. It's not special training or a seminary education or books or theology, which I all love. I love all of them. But mainly this. Here's the final encouragement. Do you want to know where you can experience the presence of the Lord? Where you can feel near to Him and He will manifest Himself to you? Love your brothers and sisters. Because that's where he is. 
He's ministering to us. He is working. He is uniting us in love. And so when you commit yourself to love your brothers and sisters, you come right alongside the Son of God. And you see Him. Not with the eyes in your head, but the eyes of your heart. Do you ever sense distance from Him? Do you sense that His presence presence is difficult to find at times? Has it been too long since you have felt deep fellowship with Him? Love your brothers and sisters deeply. This This is why Jesus says this to Peter. Simon Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Then feed my sheep. You want more of me? You want to be closer to me? You want to keep me around with you even though I'm leaving? Then feed my sheep. It's more than service, more than prayers, more than your quiet times, more than mission trips, more than conferences, more than learning new things, more than sacrifice. Love your brothers and sisters in Christ in the way that he loves them. And that is where you will find him. And a final warning. If you think you have nearness and fellowship with God, and you're not deeply, actively loving your brothers and sisters, then your belief that you are near to God and your feeling of His presence might just be your imagination or something far worse. In the time that we're going to have in just a few short moments, we're going to sing a song. That's your time to respond. Your time to pray, your time to confess sin, to ask the Lord to show you what you ought to do. If you need to talk to me, to pray with me, I will be up here. Let's pray together. Father, we confess that we have not loved one another the way you have loved us. Help us change our thinking and our priorities to understand that to reach the world, for the world to be saved, they need to see us love one another. Help us. It is by your Spirit that even Jesus prays that we would be made perfectly one. So I ask that he would come and convict us concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.